And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make the wedding, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. There are two points to this sermon. The first one I am going to call the main point, and the second point is a minor but important point. My dad was born in 1935, and uh, he played basketball in high school. He was on several very good teams. And uh, when I began, I never started playing basketball until I was about 12 years old, so 1972. My dad was 37 years old when I started playing. And uh, I had a basketball goal up behind the church. We lived in the parsonage and walk up the hill and there was the church and there was a little flat place of asphalt behind the church and we put a basketball goal there. And uh, my dad could really shoot two-handed set shots. And uh, you young people perhaps have never seen someone shoot a two-handed set shot, so I'm going to illustrate for you right now. So a two-handed set shot... You've got the basketball in front of you, and then while standing flat-footed, both hands, you push it like that. I mean, my dad could fill it up with those two-handed set shots. And he talked about uh, how that when he was playing in the early and mid-1950s, that was the predominant way that people shot. And, uh, And then... Crazy things started happening. People were running and jumping when they shot the basketball. And uh, you can imagine how the the game was transformed into what we have today. No one, if if you're under the age of 40, you've probably never seen anyone shoot a two-handed set shot. They're still playing basketball, but no one shoots a two-handed set shot. Um. The main point of this passage of Scripture has to do with the utter transformation of the true religion. Just like basketball was utterly transformed when people began running and shooting with the basketball instead of just standing and shooting flat-footed. So they ask Jesus about fasting. Now, under the Old Covenant, there was only one day out of the entire year that was prescribed to be a day of fasting, and that was the Day of Atonement. So one day 
out of 365 days was prescribed to be a day of fasting. There were seven feasts, and uh, several of them lasted for several days. So there were numerous feast days, but only one fast day. But the Pharisees and other religious groups within Judaism had determined that there ought to be more than one fast day out of the year. In fact, they said, we're going to make it that there are two days out of the week that should be fast days. So it may have always puzzled you why the Pharisee who prayed in the temple was bragging and saying, Lord, I fast twice a week. Well, that's because they they had said anyone who is really serious about religion will fast two days out of the week. But remember, according to the Bible, only one day out of the year was required. But there had grown up this this expectation. I have read that John Wesley uh, said that he would not ordain a man who would not fast two days out of the week. So there have, uh, through, through the years, there have continued to be religious groups that said, it's important that uh, we should fast more than once. So the main point of this passage of Scripture is when the Pharisees are saying, you're not acting like the rest of us. The Pharisees fast two, uh, twice at the end of the week. The disciples of John, they also fast. But your disciples don't fast. Why is that? And Jesus gives three parables in answer to that. Three very short parables, only Only two of them are called parables. But the first one is also a parable. He says, can the friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is with them? So he imagines that there is a a wedding festival and uh, the bridegroom is is there with with the wedding party. This is not the time for being sad and fasting. This is a time for rejoicing and enjoying good food. And so that's the first parable that Jesus gives them. Can the... Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? And then he gives them a second parable. He says, And no one takes a new patch and sews it on an old garment. If he does, then the new will tear away from the old, and the hole in the garment will be made worse. Now, if you have never seen someone shoot a two-handed set shot, then it's possible that you have never seen a patched garment. But when many of us were kids, uh, we, we didn't want to have holes in our jeans. We wanted to patch the holes that were in the jeans. And there were certain uh, patches that you could get at JCPenney's, turn the turn the jeans wrong side out, and you could iron a patch on there, and then you could continue to wear those jeans for a little while longer. And, uh, of course, that's the way people have treated, treated garments throughout history, is you don't throw away something just because it's got a hole in it. You patch the thing up. Uh, if you have ever made a piece of cloth by hand, or even if you have just tanned a deer hide and made a garment out of it, then you know how much work goes into making clothing if you don't just go to the store and buy it. Uh, Several years ago, I made a complete outfit out of buckskin. The shirt took three deer hides. The pants took four deer hides. And if you know what you're doing, it takes about eight hours to tan a deer hide. And so before you ever 
cut a single seam or sew a single stitch, you've got 24 hours in a shirt. You've got 32 hours in the pants, just, just getting the material ready. It's no wonder that when Greek families sent their little boys to exercise, they said, now you boys take all your clothes off before you exercise. The Greek word for naked is gumnos. And the place where you go and exercise is the gymnasium, the gymnasium. So the gymnasium literally is a place where you go and exercise naked. And uh, so the reason is they don't, they, don't want, they don't want their clothes torn up. Man, I, you know, I've got, I've got 100 hours in that, in that tunic that you're wearing, son. Uh, we're going to patch it if it gets torn, but you better not tear it when you're wrestling with the other boys. And uh, so... Jesus is talking to people who know about patches on garments. Now, you know, after you, after you wash wool, it shrinks considerably. In fact, I've, I've had a couple of sweaters that I, I think could have fit a chihuahua after they went through, after they went through the wash. Uh, especially if you put them in the dryer, you're done. But if you're very, very careful and wash it in, even in cold water, then the garment is still going to shrink some. And then if you take a new wool patch and sew it over a hole, then when you wash that garment again, the old garment has already shrunk quite a bit. The new one is going to shrink more, and it's going to make the hole, the tear in the garment, even bigger. Well, that's the second parable that Jesus gives. And the third one has to do with the way that they stored uh, wine. So when you when you first uh, put grapes or whatever you're going to make wine from, in this day it would have been uh, grapes. Whenever you first put grapes in a container, uh, either you introduce some yeast or it gathers yeast from the atmosphere, but it will have bubbles. It'll be fizzy like, uh, like a bottle of pop when you first open it. And so back in those days, they never had bottles. And so they would Carefully skin an animal, wash the skin, and prepare the hide so that then they would sew the, the arm holes shut and the ankle holes shut. And then, you know, they could pour grape juice into the neck of the, of the animal skin. And then they would seal that off so that, the, so that the bubbles would not escape and that it would ferment and become wine. Well, a new wineskin that is fresh from an animal is capable of expanding. And so that, that new wine that was put into a new wineskin would expand and fill that up. And I can imagine that when they opened it that there was something like the escaping of air from a balloon. That there was air that was filled. But the new wineskin could accommodate all that. Now, let's suppose that you emptied all the wine out of that wineskin... And then you decided, well, I'm just going to use this skin again. And you put grape juice in there that was going to ferment. Then there's no room for the wine skin to expand. And the wine skin would burst and it would be ruined. So those are the three stories that Jesus told. And the thrust, and this is the main point of this passage. The thrust is Christianity is not a patch on Judaism. Christianity is not... Well, let me go ahead and say it. It is not 
just a continuation of old Judaism. I hesitate because Christianity is the flower of Judaism. Christianity is what Judaism was intended to become. And so in that sense, it is a continuation of Judaism. But it's, it has been so transformed, like the game of basketball was transformed from the days when guys were just shooting set shots to the days now when, when guys are doing jump shots and running and shooting the ball. And so Christianity is drastically different from Judaism, and yet it is the flowering of true religion. Uh, Judaism is the basement level. Christianity is the house level. And the problem is that throughout history, many ethnic Jews have wanted to continue living in the basement. And the New Testament teaching is, no, the kingdom of God consists of Christ and the apostles built on the foundation of, of the prophets, but it is a new house. And we Christians are, a, are new and living stones built into the new house of Christianity. Now, I have great respect for ethnic Jews. I have great respect for the nation of Israel. But there ought not to be a Jewish religion anymore. The Jewish religion was supposed to turn into Christianity when the Messiah, when the Christ came. And the Christ has come. And as much respect as we have for Jews for a variety of reasons, unless they receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are going to go to hell. There is no other way to be saved but through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's, that is not an anti-Semitic statement. That is a I love Jews statement. I love Jews and I want them to turn from their sin and come to Jesus Christ. But I know Israel is great in, in the news in the last few days, and there's a lot of confusion about who they are and, and, and so on. The people who follow after Jesus Christ are now God's chosen people. At the end of Romans chapter 2, it says this, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. And circumcision is not outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Moses said, after me, God will raise up another prophet. Listen to him. And whoever does not listen to him will be completely cut off from his people. In the book of Galatians, it says, those who have faith in Jesus are the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. And so there's a great deal of confusion with the idea that there are two different peoples of God. There is only one people of God. Anyone who does not believe in Jesus is completely cut off from the people of God. You can read that in, in the Bible. It's very, very clearly stated. But there's a lot of confusion about that. So Jesus is saying to them, I, I'm not here to perpetuate all of the legalistic baggage that you have accumulated on the true religion. It would be like putting new wine into old wineskins. It would be like putting a new patch on an old garment. It would be like requiring the friends of the bridegroom to be sad when the party is going on. Now, that's the major point of this passage. The minor point 
is what triggered the whole discussion, and that's fasting. But it is a very important point and one that I think can be of great benefit to you and to me. So the question comes up, why do the disciples of John fast? Why do the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus says you can't require the friends of the bridegroom to fast while he is with them. But notice, if you've got your Bible open, if you don't just listen carefully what it says here, verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. There is an obvious expectation that after Jesus is taken from earth and goes back to heaven, that then the disciples of the Lord will fast. So just let that sink in. Uh, I, I am uh, fairly confident that in a congregation this size, it is likely that half at least this congregation has never voluntarily fasted a single day in your life. And uh, so my purpose this morning is not to heap all kinds of shame on you. My purpose this morning is to say, here is a tool that God has given that can help you to flourish and prosper as a Christian, and it's one that has largely been neglected. And so let me just give a very basic introduction to fasting, asking such questions as, what is it? Why do it? How to do it? And what blessings can you expect if you do it right? So those are actually the four points that I want to cover under this very important but minor point. It's not the main point of the passage. Fasting just triggers the discussion, but it's a very important, uh, pass- it's a very important topic that we need to think about. So first of all, fasting is not eating for a specified period of time so that you might uh, devote yourself without distraction to spiritual pursuits. So it's not eating for a specified period of time so that you can, without distraction, devote yourself to spiritual pursuits. It is, of course, possible for you to fast for merely physical reasons, I'm not going to talk about the the physical benefits. I'm going to primarily focus on the psychological and spiritual benefits. I also know that there are there are people who ought not to fast for health reasons. And so uh, if you have any question about whether or not you are a candidate for fasting, you probably should consult with your doctor about that. But for normal uh, healthy people, then uh, abstaining from food for a while is, uh, is what fasting is. Abstaining from food for the purpose of pursuing spiritual things without distraction. Now, I have in recent years heard about people fasting from other things, and uh, so uh, One of the main purposes of fasting is that you're freed from the distraction that comes along with preparing and eating and cleaning up food. But if you 
decide that you're going to fast, and then you fill all that time with uh, playing on social media, you've kind of defeated the purpose of the fast. Uh, there, so those of you who cannot fast from food, you might think, well, then I'm going to deny myself of something else that is distracting me so that for a specified period of time, I can pursue spiritual goals uh, without distraction. And so for some of you that might be uh, uh, staying away from TikTok or from Facebook or from some other, some other form of social media that can easily occupy hours of your time every day. I would say that for those of us who are healthy enough to fast literally, fasting from food, that it also would be wise for us to set aside other distractions as much as we are able. Now, if you fast very much at all, then there will be some times when you're fasting at work, or if you're a mother and you're fasting, then you've, you've got responsibilities, and fathers have responsibilities. So fasting doesn't mean that you can always shut yourself in a closet and just pray and read the Bible all the time. What happens when you fast is that uh, you get hungry, and uh, so I'm going, to, I'm going to say why fast in just a minute, but you'll get hungry. And when you get hungry, then you think, why is it that I'm fasting? So it may be you're fasting, you're thinking about someone that you want to be saved. And so when you get hungry and you really want to eat, then you just remind yourself, I'm going to pray for this person that uh, I want to be saved. Or it may be that you're praying for God's wisdom on a situation. And so when you get hungry, you say, Lord, give me wisdom on this situation. And so just throughout the day when you're fasting... And I'll try to give you some guidelines on how to get started if you have never fasted near the end of the sermon. But the, the principle is that because you're hungry, then you, uh, you're reminded to pray and seek the Lord and seek God's blessing and, and so on for whatever it is that you have set yourself apart uh, to fast. So in this passage of Scripture, let's first of all get the, get the fruit that is hanging down low. So why fast? So I've given you just the brief explanation of what fasting is. It's denying yourself of food. Now before I move on from that, let me say that there are a couple of times that we read in the Bible of someone also denying himself of water. It was Moses and Jesus neither ate nor drank for 40 days. Now that is a supernaturally enabled fast. And you might be able to go 40 days without eating, but you can't go 40 days without drinking water or you'll die. And uh, so for most of us, fasting is just going without food. During the three days that Esther called upon the Jews to fast on her behalf, she said, neither I nor my maidens will touch food or drink for three days. And so after three days, you're going to be a lot more thirsty than you are hungry. I've never tried it. I'm not recommending that you go without water. But uh, so what is fasting? It's going without food. That's the primary, the primary uh, definition of fasting, going without food so that you can seek spiritual goals without distraction. Now, why fast? Here's the low-hanging fruit. Jesus says, when the bridegroom is taken from them, then they will fast. So you don't have to be a preacher to figure this out. Why are they fasting when Jesus is gone? Because they miss him. He's been there. They have enjoyed his company. Now he's gone and they miss him. 
And there's an element to their missing him that is probably not present for you and me. They, you know, would remember, oh, you know, we had a campfire there one night. Oh, this is the place where this is the place where Jesus healed that lame man. And you remember, this is where he said that. It's the sort of way that you miss someone that you love who has died. And so that's the way that they would miss Jesus. And that's the way that you and I will not miss Jesus because we, we have never walked with him the way that they did. But there is perhaps a way that we would miss Jesus even more intensely than they did. Uh, we have a tendency to mistakenly think that it would be such an advantage to have physically been with Jesus and touched him and heard him. But remember that there were thousands of people who were physically with Jesus who heard him and touched him who did not become followers of Jesus. And uh, even at, after he was raised from the dead, uh, Thomas said, I, I won't believe it. I won't believe he's raised from the dead unless I touch the nail marks in his hands and put my hand in his side. And so Jesus uh, comes back and says, here, Thomas, put your fingers in my hands. Here's, here's my side. I can imagine that he raised his, his uh, garment to one side, and there was a gaping hole right there where a spear had entered. He said, put your hand in here. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's you and me. So, here, here are three levels of ways that we miss Jesus. Let's start with the best one first. We have enjoyed such sweet fellowship with him that when that is suddenly taken away or, or gradually taken away, that we think, oh, man, I miss that fellowship. I miss that fellowship with Jesus. So you've just had such sweet communion with Jesus that when that sweet communion is not there, you miss him and you say, you know, I'm going, I miss him so much, I'm going to fast so that I can more earnestly seek his face for a while. So that's a very good reason. A not so good reason, in fact a bad reason, is because there have been so many distractions that have come into your life that you're... Jesus is gone, but you're not really missing him. And then one day you wake up and you think, my life is crazy. And I am just running around with this and with that. And I am not sitting at the feet of Jesus. Why do I spend so much time doing all kinds of things other than sitting at the feet of Jesus? And you say, i got to get this under control. I'm going to set apart a day of fasting so that I'll get a proper perspective on all these distractions. And then there's a third reason, and it's getting worse. You know, so first of all, you just miss Jesus because you love that fellowship. Secondly, things have come in and kind of choked out that good seed, that good fellowship. Now, here's the bad reason. There is some sin that is interrupting your fellowship with Jesus. It may be something that is happening repeatedly. Have you tried fasting you know, I, I have young men who talk to me about, ah, Dr. Oreck, I, I keep struggling with pornography and struggling with lust, and what, what am I supposed to do? Have you tried fasting? How about you just make up your mind, the next time I look at pornography, I'm going to fast 
for 48 hours. No food. 48 hours. Then I would start to think, this, this young man's getting serious about overcoming his pornography problem. And there are a couple of benefits to that. One is, you've got 48 hours to humble yourself, repent of your sin, and taste the sweetness of the Lord, which is really the key to overcoming all sin. The key to overcoming sin is not, I'm going to get rid of the bad, but I'm going to be filled with the good. And so you say, and then another thing, the next time you're tempted, you say, oh no, if I do that, I've already signed a contract. I am not going to eat for 48 hours. And I do not want to go 48 hours without eating. So it's, it's a deterrent. It is a, it is a tool in your arsenal to fight against sin. So those are some very good reasons that are right here in the text. You know, when the bridegroom is taken from them, whether it's just because they, they miss me, because stuff has grown up and interfered, or because it's sin that has caused the bridegroom to be absent, fasting is a, is a way to, to combat that or to, to deal with that spiritual condition. Now, there are other reasons for fasting that are not just exactly in this text. But one is that fasting fasting is not guaranteed to make you humble. In fact, we'll see in just a few minutes, it can make you proud. But fasting sure is a good opportunity to get humble. When, When all of that energy and all that excitement that goes with food is taken away from you, What you are saying when you're fasting is you're saying, there is something that I want more than food, and I'm going to concentrate on that. Now, fasting does not prove to God that you are serious. Some people have that idea. If I fast, it'll show God that I really am serious about this thing I'm praying for. Fasting does not prove to God that you are serious, but fasting can make you serious. When you've got all that, all that energy and all that excitement that's surrounded with food, when it's taken away from you, then it can make you very serious about what you're, what you're pursuing. A wrong idea of fasting is that somehow you're, you're punishing your body and God wants you to punish your body. That has characterized a lot of bad fasting throughout history. Your body is not evil. But your body is also not to be running the show. The Apostle Paul says, I beat my body and make it my slave, lest after having preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. A couple of weeks ago, maybe last week, I, 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 I divided up the human psyche and I had, I had you talking to your body. Well, that's, that's kind of a biblical idea. Paul says, I beat my body. To make it my slave. What we do, you, let's think of it this way. You have been granted an everlasting soul and you have been given a body. And the soul is immeasurably more important than the body. And so if, if denying the body will help you to improve and enhance the health of your soul, you should do it. Your body is not evil, but your body should not be in control. So... Your soul is way more important than your body. 
But what often happens is that we get that turned around and we're way more concerned about eating and sleeping and drinking than we are with the health of our soul. A fast of one and a half days, if you've never done it, you'll just be amazed at how much it can rectify things. Uh, that you're going to say to your body, I know you're hungry, but there's something that I want more than to feed you, and you are just going to have to be my servant. St. Francis of Assisi said many lovely things. I hope that you'll find it humorous what he called his body, Brother Ass. He called his body Brother Ass. Brother donkey. But the idea was, I am not going to have you ride me. I'm going to ride you. I'm going to use you, my body, for the glory of God. And so fasting will not make you, will not prove to God that you're serious, but it has potential to make you serious. Uh, Fasting is not a punishment of the body, but fasting will help you to have a proper perspective on the needs of the body. So those are several good reasons for fasting. And uh, so now how, how do you fast? Well, in, in the scripture reading, one of the scripture readings that I read was from Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus says, when you fast, note that, note that beginning word. Not if you fast, but When you fast, there seems to be the confident expectation that if you are my follower, you are going to fast. When you fast, wash your face, anoint your head with oil. So I don't think that means that you need to pour a little drop of olive oil on your head. I think that the the meaning is don't, don't go around with a sad look on your face. Don't put a little smudge of ash on your forehead to tell people that you're, you're fasting. It's a secret thing. Just keep it between yourself and the Lord. And, the, and God who sees in secret will reward you openly. So fix your hair the normal way. Wash your face. Put on deodorant would be a modern rendition of that. Don't, don't go around sad so that people will say, Oh, what's wrong with you? I'm fasting today. Because then if people say, Oh, wow, he's spiritual. Then you've received your reward. Do it in secret so that your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, if you are a a child who eats at your Father's table and you're going to fast, you should first of all ask the permission of your parents. Is it okay for me to do this? And then if they say, yes, it is, then say, then I won't be eating tomorrow. You know, or if you are a husband and your wife is preparing food for you, then you should just say, I, I won't be eating tomorrow, and, uh, and so on. Whatever the case may be, you don't want to inconvenience someone else who prepares, you a big, who prepares a meal expecting you to eat, and then you're not going to eat. It's just common courtesy to say, I won't be eating. For you students who live at the calf, you don't have to tell the cafeteria <laughs> anything. Just don't, just don't eat that day. And uh, so do it in secret. Now, here is just some practical advice. If you have never fasted, let me give you some practical advice on how to do it. 
let's say that you're going to, first of all, I think that Sunday is the day of rejoicing. And so unless you're on a prolonged fast, I don't recommend that you, re- that you fast on Sunday. Sunday is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So you've got other six days that you can fast. Now, if you decide that you're going to fast for a week or two weeks, then, of course, that's going to encompass some Sundays. Uh, but as, if you're just going to fast for a day or two, then I recommend that you don't do Sunday. But let's say that you're going to fast Tuesday. So I would recommend that on Monday evening you eat a lighter-than-usual supper. Lighter than usual. So you wake up on Tuesday. This is your day that you're going to fast. If you are addicted to caffeine... Go ahead and drink your coffee because you're going to get an enormous headache if you don't. And the purpose is not to make yourself miserable. The purpose is to to seek the Lord. And so if you're addicted to caffeine, I would say go ahead, drink your coffee on Tuesday morning. And then go about your day. If you can set aside special times that you would normally eat and prepare food and clean up food, try to devote those times to seeking the Lord, praying, reading the Bible and uh, seeking the Lord for whatever purpose it is. I, and then I'm going to say, just go that day and don't eat. Uh, for the most part, I don't really get hungry until it's about supper time. And then about supper time, I start thinking, I sure would like to eat. But then you think, well, I'm just a few hours from bedtime. So I'm going, to, I'm going to stick it out and go to bed. And you go to bed and you wake up the next morning. And what you've done is you have, except for your coffee, you fasted for 36 hours. If you, if you drink coffee in the morning and then you don't drink it again until the next morning, then you've actually had a 24-hour fast. I think that you'll be surprised. If you've never fasted before, I think you'll be surprised at, at how little you are hungry on Wednesday morning. And my, my advice to you is be careful on that day and don't gorge yourself. Uh, the primary benefits that I'm talking about are spiritual and psychological. But just benefit, your stomach is going to shrink on that 36 hours that you don't eat. And it won't swell up again unless you stuff it full. And so eat moderately. And it may even reset your perspective on food. Now, I had intended to have you turn to Isaiah chapter 58 and look at all of the benefits that are there. But, uh, and that's, that's, if you decide to fast, that may be something that you read would be an encouragement to you, Isaiah chapter 58. But there's one thing in particular that the Lord mentions in Isaiah chapter 58 that I think you should consider making part of your fast. And the Lord says, have I, is my only purpose to make you humble yourself? Is it not to feed the hungry, to take the poor into your home? So one of the, one of the benefits of fasting is that it, it helps you to remember people who go without food so much. How much do you spend on food each day? Well, it depends on what you're eating. It depends on where you're eating. But let's just say that you decide on average you spend about $10 a day on feeding yourself. If you're eating out, it's a lot more than that. But let's just say you're eating at home and it's $10 a day. Take that $10 and say, I am going to give this to a poor person or to a ministry that is taking care of the poor or someone who could use that $10. So, 
I, I, I think that most of the people who are begging for money at exit ramps should be working. And I think it's a bad idea to give them money. You can do what you want with your money and to the people who are begging at exit ramps. But I think that there are other poor people who really need the money. I think of the ministry of five loaves. What would $10 buy for the children at five loaves? You fast one day, you decide to give 10 extra dollars to five loaves, and then there are several children who eat that day because of your $10. Or you think about uh, the children in this church who have been adopted. Now, many of these children were born to mothers who felt like, I cannot take care of this child. Praise God, they never aborted those children. But they said, I'm I'm going to give these children. There are people who want my child. And it's expensive to adopt a child. So Brittany and Thomas, looks like they're going to have the opportunity to adopt another child. I don't know how much it's going to cost, but I promise you it's going to be more than $20,000. Now, what happens if you fast and you say, I'm going to take that money and I'm going to give it to Brittany and Thomas? Because there is a little baby that is counting on them to be able to take care of them. And, you know, there's a ministry in Shepherdsville called Mark 12 Ministries uh, that, that tries to care for the homeless. And, You know, in in these days, hospitality is not what it was 2,000 years ago. And you might feel feel uneasy about having a homeless person just show up into your house. Understand that. Uh, Contribute to a ministry that is taking care of the homeless people. But I think that's one of the important functions of fasting. It's not just for you, but you're also looking outward. How How can I use this money? to ease someone else's burden, to ease someone else's suffering. So I've just mentioned three things. You know, there's five loaves. There's Brittany and Thomas and other people who are adopting. There's Mark 12 ministries. There are other ministries like that that are worthy. And when you're fasting, then with the money that you save, use it to be a blessing to others. Now, this, this entire sermon has been primarily directed to people who already know Jesus. We're getting ready to have the Lord's Supper, and in, in this little tray, there is some grape juice that represents the blood of the Lord Jesus, and in this little tray, there is some bread that represents the body of the Lord Jesus. And on the night that he was betrayed, he broke the bread, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took, the, he took the wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink all of it. One of the major, I, I want, if, if somebody from the year 0 B.C. came and looked at this efflorescence, this flowering of Judaism, what would they notice was missing? There's no animal sacrifices. I think that would be the outstanding thing. There's no animal sacrifices. Why don't we sacrifice animals anymore? We, we don't sacrifice animals anymore because Jesus has shed his blood and Jesus has suffered in his body so that sin might be forgiven those who receive him. And this meal represents 
It says, I have already received Jesus. This meal will not make you a Christian. In fact, if you're not a Christian, you shouldn't take this meal. Today we have seen baptism. Baptism is saying, I'm going to follow Jesus from now on. The Lord's Supper says, I need to continue feeding on Jesus from now on. You're only baptized once after you're converted. But you go on taking the Lord's Supper month after month and year after year to say, I need the body and blood of Jesus to cover my sins. I'd like for those who are going to help to serve this meal, come forward now. And uh, if you... If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and if you have followed him in baptism, then uh, we welcome you to join us. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or if you have not been baptized following your conversion, I urge you to abstain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you'll help us to want Jesus more than anything. We thank you that he has abundantly provided for our every need. We thank you that most of us in this room have never gone hungry a single day unless we were sick or unless we voluntarily decide to go hungry. And we pray that you will give us wisdom as we seek to apply the teaching of this sermon to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.